So we'll start with our chance as usual. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues and the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path of omniscience, may these arise on the mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, you are their equal in your mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Yet you practice hidden in the forest from sacred solitude, long chapa, who perfected samsara and nirvana in the state of dharma, kayatri, may lose their stainless light. At your feet, I pray, grant your blessing so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. Oh, good evening. Hey, a uh, little bit of uh, logisticalness. Next week is Thanksgiving uh, weekend, uh, week. Next week is Thanksgiving on Thursday, as usual, uh, when it is. And... Um, Sometimes we would uh, not meet on the week of Thanksgiving because so many people are traveling, going to the Bahamas or their islands and the Seychelles for vacation. This year, um, maybe not so many. So, show me all of you, show me your hands. Okay. If... If you want to, if you would like to meet again next Tuesday, drop your hands. Was there anybody that can't meet next Tuesday? Okay, cool. So we'll meet next Tuesday. Wow. That means we may be able to actually get into some of the Vajrayana stuff at the back. At the, in the middle of the book. That would be cool. Great. Okay, so we'll meet next Tuesday then. Um, so uh, this evening was a numerologist stream, as I said earlier. And uh, for us, I think it's a, it's a challenge to like... Uh, how to deal with this excessive uh, compulsive disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder around lists and numbers. <laughs> and translate like what part of it is like important and, re and relevant for us 
you know, not getting lost in the numerology. So for each part of the of the schemes, maybe we can uh, stop and, and uh, think about that a little bit as opposed to diving down into numerology. So tonight we begin with the paths of the cause-based approaches. And as, as opposed to the fruition-based secret mantra approach. So the cause-based approaches are the sutriyana systems that are based on cause. The paths operates based on causes of um, overcoming obstacles and obscurations and uh, developing good qualities, cultivating good qualities to achieve enlightenment. As if enlightenment is something that can be uh, created or caused, brought about by causes and conditions. And uh, let's see, it's going to divide this part of the path into three stages, as is done traditionally, three yanas, Shravaka yana, Pratika, Buddha yana, and Bodhisattva yana. How many of you guys have read through the Profound Treasure of the Ocean of Dharma, Volume 1 by Chogyam Trungpa? So, uh, those of you... Reading it now. Those of you that have, uh, at the back, he has a chapter on the path, the paths, and it's very, it's rather clear that his source, or at least one of his main sources for that, is this book. Because uh, uh, it's very similar in many ways. Uh, although, <laughs> Rimshay does not go quite as deep into the numbers as long term. Thank God. Okay, the Shravak approach is a search for freedom for one's own sake. Got to start looking out for oneself, right? Undertaken out of disgust with the suffering of samsara, nausea, renunciation. How one follows this path is as described in Vasubandhu's Abhidharma Kosha here translated as the treasury of Abhidharma, maintaining discipline and having heard and contemplated teachings one applies oneself intensively to meditation. So there's three aspects. Uh, There's the three wheels of the Dharma, which are conduct, meditation, and wisdom. And wisdom has three parts or three steps. Uh, Learning, sorry, hearing, contemplating and meditating. So he arranges the three wheels in this order of uh, discipline, conduct, and then focusing on the first two stages of wisdom and then bringing together the third stage of wisdom with the second wheel, meditation. Usually one controls one's mind to the uh, discipline of any of the seven kinds of ordination. He lists what those are. And uh, someone who maintains discipline in one of these ways then becomes learned by studying the following topics. These these are the standard. This is the standard list of uh, important topics. Particularly, the first three are called the three skills: mind, body, aggregates, the skandhas. 
the fields of experience are the datus, skandhas, datus, and the components of perception are the ayatadas, five skandhas, 18 datus, and 12 ayatadas makes 35, just to get it to some numbers. Then we have the 12 links of interdependent uh, connection, the 12 madonnas gets us to 47, cause and effect, um, is let's see, there's six and four is ten, and there's four is fourteen, that gets us to uh, sixty-one. And the controlling factors is generally twenty-two, that gets us to eighty-four dharmas, roughly. <laughs> anyway, um. Those are the main chapters in the first section of Vasubandhu's Treasury of the Dharma. So you learn these things, and uh, one way or another, I think uh, all of us have uh, learned a little bit about these in our uh, perusal of the Buddha Dharma. And uh, you might think, well, if I don't know what this or that is, and maybe then it's worth looking into this or that. Um, and uh, one of the goals of the Remeshedra curriculum is to go through this, these uh, major topics. We did that years ago by going through a book by Mipam called The, the uh, Gateway to Knowledge, where he gives a commentary on the treasury of uh, Abhidharma and, and these topics on it. Uh, Henrietta. Uh, controlling factors? Yes. What are they? They're very controlling. Uh, let's see. Do they have another name that I've heard of, maybe? <laughs> uh, he doesn't list them. No, I was surprised. He gives a footnote on that, but not on cause and effect. Then he talks about cause and effect. Uh huh. The controlling factors are like. Uh, um, uh, Attention, um, investigation, discipline, inclination, things like that, qualities like that. And if you email me a reminder, I'll send you a list of the controlling factors. Sort of interesting, right? Well, I, I just um, thought maybe they had a, a title like Datu Zayatanas or something like that. Yeah. Uh -huh. No. They do, and I can't remember. Uh, I think they're the in, Indrias. The Indrias. I-N-D-R Indrias. I-N-D-R-I-Y-A-S. Which is confusing because the six senses are also called Indrias. Or the five senses are. Really? Oh. But anyway. Okay. Thank you. The practitioner next engages in spiritual development through the practice of meditation. This is primarily a process of accepting some things and rejecting others on the basis of the four noble truths so knowing what to accept and reject you've probably heard this phrase Trump Ramesha uses this phrase and many teachers use this phrase knowing what to accept and what to reject basically the life of a Dharma practitioner boils down to that the, the life uh, sort of uh, in, the, in the larger sense not necessarily in terms of like on the cushion but Knowing what to accept and what to reject. What what do we spend our time on and what should we not spend our time on? 
What do we cultivate? What do we try to uncultivate, to use a silly word? On the basis of the Four Noble Truths. And if you read this chapter, you would see that uh, the scheme of the past is like revolves completely around the Four Noble Truths. So maybe we'll just start there. Who knows the Four Noble Truths? Let's see. Um, Brock. Um, origin uh, of suffering. Well, truth to suffering, truth su of the origin of suffering. Yeah. Uh, truth to the cessation of suffering. Yeah. And truth to the path. The path. All right. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. Those are the Four Noble Truths. To elaborate the truth of suffering concerns what is analogous to illness, blah, 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 as well as all that derives from this, that is the five mind-body aggregates, the skandhas that constitute one's experience of and perpetuate samsara. In order to eliminate this, i.e. suffering, one sets out to understand the nature of one's relentless involvement in it. Our relentless involvement in suffering we got to understand why we obsessed with causing our own suffering. The truth of the universal origin of suffering concerns what is analogous to the causes of this illness. That is, karmic patterning, the function of which is like an artist drawing a picture. One sets out to eliminate the three mental poisons and other causes of suffering. Little uh, gloss on the karmic patterning as consisting of uh, primarily the three roots. The truth is the cessation of suffering concerns what is analogous to the well-being of one cured of an illness, and one strives to attain the sacred fruition of beauty with the joy that comes from being free of the pit or pestilence that is samsara. Very graphic language. The truth of the spiritual path concerns what is analogous to the medicine one engages in meditation to be cured of the illness of suffering. And... Uh, he gives a nice little quote and says, furthermore, regarding the first four paths, so that is the four of the five paths, and uh, one develops one's meditation in a sevenfold progression. Now, his note, uh, the author, the translator, rather's note, um, Seven gives the five paths as, and it's sort of important to at least know the names of the paths and the general idea of the paths. So there's accumulation. And uh, actually, I have a, a cool little chart of this for you guys. Oh, let's see. Oh, maybe this will do it. Yeah. Um, five, five, here, five paths. Paths of accumulation. Here we uh, practice the four foundations of mindfulness in particular, and what to adopt and what to reject. And the paths of preparation, the, or sometimes also called paths of unification. We develop a profound insight into the four noble truths, and we cut the root to the desire realm. The desire realm is one of the, how many realms are there? Show of fingers, anyone? Anyway. 
should be able to do it on one hand. That's a hint. How many realms are there? Three. <laughs> Not the six realms. This is a different scheme, right? So there's the realm of desire, the realm of form, and the realm of formlessness. Where do we live? Desire. Desire, the first realm, desire. Okay, and that's what we cut in the paths of preparation, paths of insight. On this path, also called the paths of seeing. We realize the, we actually realize directly the Four Noble Truths. And when we affiliate with that, uh, this scheme with the Bodhisattva path scheme, this is the first Bodhisattva level or Bhumi. It's uh, equivalent to realizing the emptiness of phenomena. We have the path of cultivation uh, in our text called the path of meditation, as it usually is. Um, the practitioner continues the inside of the paths of insight and begins to enter the second to ninth bodhisattva levels. And this is where you eliminate in excruciating detail myriad numbers of different uh, defects, defilements. Paths are no more learning. Or paths of fulfillment, the practitioner attains complete Samadhi and Buddhahood. So, Derek, most of us are on the path of accumulation, right? That's correct. Yes. He gives this quote back on page 128. He gives this quote from the Church of Abhidharma about the paths. It's a little confusing because he breaks it up in reverse order and divides the second path into four parts. And, and uh, so anyway, to elaborate, in the initial phase of the paths of accumulation, one develops the four foundations, four applications of mindfulness, and in the intermediate, the four aspects of correct renunciation, etc., etc. So he goes through the 37 aspects or wings of enlightenment that those of us who uh, did the uh, finding rest of the nature of mind came across this. Let's see. 30. Here we go. 37 wings of enlightenment and the 16 foundations of the aspects of the Four Noble Truths and the 10 Bhumi. So, in the paths of accumulation, you have the four mindfulnesses, foundations of mindfulness of body, feeling, mind, and dharmas. The four renunciations, reducing negatives, stopping negatives that you don't have, increasing positives, gathering ones you don't have. The four concentrative absorptions, riddipada, strong interest, perseverance, attentiveness, investigation, passive application, has uh, these five qualities uh, repeated in one. Uh, initially, they're called controlling powers, and then they're called unshakable powers when they get sort of uh, on steroids in the second part of the path of application. They get supercharged confidence, uh, sustained effort or discipline, exertion, inspection from the inspector, concentrative absorption, and appreciative discrimination. And through that one goes through four stages of the paths of uh, either preparation or application or unification. That second path has three names, application, 
unification and preparation. You go through heat or warmth, peak. Um, uh, I think he might call it highest attainment, I think, in this scheme. Uh, supreme Dharma and highest worldly experience. This is a mistake, I have to fix that. This third one is supposed to be uh, patient acceptance. And then supreme dormant highest worldly experience are synonyms for the fourth stage. Thank you for pointing that out. Jeez, I gotta fix that. Then we have the passive scene. You have the Sanskrit in case you like that. And that's uh, where you cultivate the seven factors of enlightenment listed here, including joy. And you have the 10 bhumis, paramitas associated with each, um, and the first one of uh, which occurs on the path of seeing. And one also goes through the 16 moments of the four noble truths, which we see reference to. And we have the truth of suffering has four parts these parts. Um, and these are translated differently. Hmm. I have to check this list. This doesn't look right. We have the 16 here. Well, let's, when we get to it, we'll see what terms he uses. You have the fourth path of cultivation in which you cultivate the uh, Noble Eightfold Path. Right view, intention, speech, action, livelihood, effort, mindfulness, and concentration. Ten Bhumis. The nine of the ten bhumis and then non-meditation is Buddhahood, the eleventh so-called bhumi. Um, Derek? Yes, ma'am. Do I? I don't. Did we get that as a handout or last time? <laughs> well, you were meditating. <laughs> Just now, I sent uh, and I, uh, I sent that and the thirty-seven we saw before in the. In yeah. One, Rest in the nature of mind. Uh, Professor Gunther had a version of that for us. Oh, okay. I don't remember that um, list. Okay. Oh, here's a better version. Okay. Yeah, so this is what, uh, from Professor Herbert Gunther. The preparation, the two sets of five, the four stages, heat, peak, patient acceptance, and highest worldly dharma. And what was the other mistake? The 12 aspects, sorry, the 16 aspects. Okay, we'll have to check that. As we go through, first we have the path of accumulation and the Shravaka approach. So we have Shravakas and Pratyeka Buddhas to get through tonight. First we have the four applications of mindfulness. 
you're familiar with the four applications of mindfulness, they are the core presentation of uh, meditative practice in the Buddhist tradition. And uh, they're provided in the earliest of the Buddhist texts and traditions in uh, a few different uh, places in the early sutras of the Buddha most notably in one called the Four Foundations of Mindfulness Sutra. And they, uh, they are taken in many different ways by different traditions and different people in terms of how, how one practices one and how one understands their, uh, their connection to shamatha and vipassana, or the development of uh, calm abiding, kamala abiding, Biden. Let me try that once again. Calm, Kamala, Abide, and uh, Inside Meditation. <laughs> um, the first and all step in the past is that of accumulation. Beginners who have entered this phase develop the application of mindfulness on the basis of the body. Best place to start, right? We, we have to work with as an antidote to attachment to their own and others' bodies. It's very different than the, than the way Uttam Purvashe and Mahayana teachers work with uh, mindfulness of the body. Um, so in the Hinayana so-called tradition, the mindfulness of the body is a practice that's really focused on uh, 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 overcoming attachment to the body. Direct the patterns of desire in general, one neutralizes attachment by meditating on one's own and others' bodies and all that one perceives as skeletons. Now, the meditation of uh, everybody as a skeleton is one of, an, of like, uh, I think, seven different meditations that are given under the mindfulness of the body section of the four foundations of mindfulness. Others of them are like the 32 impure parts of the body, where they list all the gross stuff and uh, the four postures of sitting, standing, walking, and uh, sitting, standing, and lying down, and the uh, breaths, working with the breath in, in different ways. Uh, but the skeletons is sort of one of the most outstanding meditative schemes, is uh, meditating on different stages of uh, decomposition of the body specific antidotes one meditates on eight mental images now normally there's nine everybody else has nine but anyway a decomposing corpse a swollen corpse and a maggot ridden corpse as examples and I think in the footnotes which I lost my page to he gives darn where are we one he gives the list doesn't he yes uh a decomposing corpse, swollen, maggot-ridden, corpse in advanced stage of putrefaction, scattered in pieces, being cremated, devoured by wild animals, and disintegrated. So, a very uh, apparently helpful way of uh, getting over attachment to one's body. Uh, once free of attachment, one develops the application of mindfulness by closely examining one's body, occasionally using methods such as meditating on it as if it were a hollow reed. So the insubstantiality of the body 
or the, the body as like a sack. Then one develops the application of mindfulness on the basis of sensations, feelings, not in the sense of emotionality, but one meditates on one's perception of those three kinds of sensation. And uh, this is the traditional description of the uh, mental factor of sensation as having three possibilities, positive, negative, or neutral, and painful, and without this or essence. So the idea is that all sensations are viewed as painful, even pleasant sensations. So your question, your first question for tonight is why are pleasant sensations viewed as painful? Time zone. Anyone? Brock, why are they why are sensations viewed as painful? Attachment. Uh same one. Uh, if you're attached to the body and you know, in pleasure and uh, isn't why, that a, why is that painful? Why is attachment painful? Uh, because it doesn't last. Bingo! Impermanence, because all the sensations are impermanent. So even if you're having a great time, you know it's going to end. So it's basically the suffering of change. That's right. And, I'd like to quick, could I talk for a second about a, a happening a couple of weeks ago? Uh, I was on, on our deck and I was smelling this putrid smell of uh rotting flesh and uh went looking for it out in front of our deck and there was a small dead deer out there and it had been there long enough that there were flies and maggots and it had to be moved that was a lovely job uh underneath it were you know what i'm talking about very uh i had a shower didn't get it out of my skin. I could, the smell was that, that bad. And I, I mean, I you cover it up, needless to say, I really had a good use for my mask. Wow. You don't have a shovel? It didn't really work. Excuse me? You don't have a shovel? Uh, I, had, I used a rake to pull it over onto the plastic that I had to get it into my truck to get to the dump with it. Wow. Just burying it wouldn't, <laughs> that would have been more work. Didn't but uh, I had to really it? get rid of it. Excuse how come, me? How come something didn't eat it? Don't you have coyotes out there? Oh, there are. But I mean, uh, it was really close to the house. It was like, uh, I think it maybe was injured. I, I have a trough that they drink from. Deer are drinking at my trough. And I have a feeling maybe it got injured on the road and then died before somewhere along the line. But I, it was semi, it wasn't visible for until I went looking for it and it was fairly close, but man, it was a terrible job. I don't know, I just had to uh, bring up this rotting corpse. <laughs> you have a very vivid uh, image in your mind for doing this meditation. Oh, forever. <laughs> You just have to use that image on your own body. There you go. There, and then you're there. Um, 
Next one develops the application of mindfulness on the base of mind. That is when focuses on one's inhalation, exhalation using the techniques of Kamala Abiden and profound insight. And for Shravaka's, the relative level of truth entails the continuum of ordinary mind, the uh, uh, stream of moments of uh, mind, instance, and the calming of thoughts, whereas the ultimate level of truth entails irreducible moments of consciousness when the continuum of ordinary mind is further examined. And context one meditates on the fact that none of this constitutes personal identity. And um, next one develops the application of mindfulness on the basis of phenomena regarding the phenomena included in the aggregates of formative factors and consciousness, which is uh, skandhas four and five. One meditates on the nature of all external internal entities being such that they lack any identity or are permanent and are like illusions and so forth. So you see the four uh, foundations of mindfulness are uh, oriented towards cultivating experience of the impurity of the body, the uh, suffering of uh, sensations because of the impermanence of sensations and of uh, the lack of identity in the mind stream and the uh, lack of essence or entity in the, uh, the dharmas. And using aggregates of form, sensation, and discernment, which are skandhas one, two, and three, one meditates by applying mindfulness to the three aspects of body, sensation, sensations, and mind, experiencing these to be without finite essence, and so forth. Using the two aggregates of discernment and consciousness, three and five, one meditates by applying mindfulness to those phenomena. Thus, in various ways, one removes the afflictive states that entail overt fixation on all phenomena included in the five mind-body aggregates. So he states two options using skandhas one, two, and three to focus on mindfulnesses one, two, and three, and then one other. And I think he's just giving examples, but I think the idea is to, to use different aspects of the skandhas and the mindfulnesses to develop dexterity and the uh, result, which is removing afflictive states that entail overt fixation on phenomena included in the five skandhas. Having suppressed the coarser factors to be eliminated, among the factors to be eliminated, by virtue of doing this meditation, one then advances on the path. Skipping the quote, that is one should meditate on each of these with respect to both their general and specific characteristics experiencing the body is unclean by nature. This is the summary. The body is unclean or impure. Sensations as painful. The mind as impermanent. And mental phenomena as lacking identity. So uh, impure impurity and then the three marks of existence, sometimes collectively called the four characteristics of existence. The intermediate phases, the four aspects of correct renunciation. And here you do what we went through earlier, which is uh, try not to take up any bad habits. So if you don't smoke cigarettes already, you try not to 
to take up smoking cigarettes. If you do smoke cigarettes, you try to reduce your smoking of cigarettes. If you're not a very compassionate person, you try to cultivate compassion. If you already are compassionate, you try to increase your cultivation, Henrietta. Thank you. Just uh, one step back. Um, mental phenomena, by mental phenomena, we mean, he means uh, objects of mind? Or... Uh, objects of mind would generally be a good description of mental phenomena, but here he really means the, uh, the uh, fourth object of, the, of mindfulness, which is uh, dharmas. Dharmas. Phenomena. Yes. Uh, for some reason, he says mental phenomena here. I'm not sure why. But. Okay. Thank you. And so uh, because this results in the correct renunciation of all that is negative, and he should say the cultivation of all that is positive, he's probably just using shorthand or term, the aspects of correct, correct renunciation. We have the final phase of the path of accumulation, the four bases of supernormal powers, which uh, one cultivates four kinds of meditative absorption in this final phase of the path of accumulation. Intention, diligence, attention, and analysis. These four factors, sometimes called the four uh, wings of the of a flying horse or something. They have a very funny name, usually. Um, uh, let's see. In succession, one meditates by giving rise to one-pointed intention. So cultivating, you know, this, 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 these four, I think, are, are like really the core of the path for us, for those of us, for those beings who are on the path of accumulation, i.e. us. It's like cultivating intention. What is our intentionality throughout our lifetime and in our practice? And as a Buddhist, what is our intention in life? And constantly being aware of our intention. Uh, using some positive frame of reference on either relative or ultimate level. In the same context with intense diligence. So constantly uh, exerting ourselves to... Uh, not cause harm, to be helpful, and to be mindful most of all, to be attentive. Derek, can I ask what what's um, when they, he says positive frame of reference on either the relative or ultimate level? Like, what would be an example of a frame positive frame of reference? Like, yeah, I guess I was just confused by the difference of the two levels and what would be an example of one in each, I guess, or something. I figured he was just saying, like, in all aspects of our life, on a relative level, like, uh, what is our intention in getting work, in, in getting uh, in relationships, in our friendships, and how we spend our time. On the ultimate level, what's our goal in life in terms of the path and practice? Got it. It's just sort of uh, uh, worldly and, and ultimate levels. What's our intention? Uh, let's see. One, with the intense diligence, one sustains one's meditation. And then through attention, one focuses on it, one pointedly cultivating intention. Attention. And... Uh, 
And then finally, through analysis, one thoroughly investigates the object of one's meditation. So um, being diligent, first, you know, cultivating our intention or um, cultivating a uh, correct intention at all times. And then uh, being diligent about pursuing our intention and then uh, being extremely focused on meditation practice and then investigating, constantly investigating our meditation, our mind, what we're doing, what's going on in the world. Investigating, who's investigating? Investigating, what is the mind? What is confusion? What's the root of samsara? What is suffering? What is the root of suffering? These are called the bases of supernormal power. These are the uh, sometimes called the four bases of miraculous feet or something. It relates to some legend of a flying horse because they bring about any and all states of meditative stability. So constitute skillful means for or aids to gaining supernormal power. So if you want to gain the ability to influence friends and uh, influence people and win friends, and uh, succeed and work and get the relationships you want. It's a good thing to cultivate these four. <laughs> um, let's see, passive linkage. Uh, so uh, passive linkage is the second of the five paths. And uh, in this uh, path is divided into two parts. There's, uh, there's four main stages of it and uh, two stages in each of the two parts. And the first stage is meditative warmth and then the peak experience. And within those, the, the combination of those two stages, we cultivate these five governing powers. These are the five powers of confidence. Interesting. Confidence. Confidence in wakefulness. Confidence in the path, confidence in using antidotes to overcome obstacles and obstructions, diligence, mindfulness, meditative absorption, and sublime, sublime knowing is prajna. One meditates with conviction based on one's confidence in the 16 topics pertaining to the four truths, confidence in the dharma. One's meditation is such that diligence ensures enthusiasm. Mindfulness ensures that these topics of meditation are not forgotten. Meditative absorption ensures that the mind pays one pointed attention to them, and sublime knowing ensures that they are analyzed. So once again, we return to analysis. This phase embraces the four truths within its scope and involves 16 topics from the phase of meditative warmth. comes out of the peak experience, which has a similar structure. What are the 16 topics for concern the truth of suffering? And yeah, it looks like what we had before. Let's see, share screen. Let's see. Oh, five, 16. Okay, so... Uh, truth of suffering and permanence, suffering, emptiness, lack of identity. Oh, we got to fix this guy. Okay. Uh, for concerning the origin, 
that all things in essence have causes, that these causes are universal origin of suffering, that they are produced relentlessly, and that they are perpetuated by conditions for concern, the cessation of suffering, cessation of peace, the ideal situation, and disengagement, for concern, the path, the path itself, the logic of the process of the path, and the proven attainment to which it leads, and the certainty of release. Patient acceptance in the highest state of meditative experience, the five strengths. During the two anticipatory phases of patient acceptance in the highest state of mundane experience. So these are anticipatory in that they anticipate the next two stages of the path of uh, the second path, which lead to enlightenment, the path of seeing. So they anticipate that. During this one cultivates these five strengths, these strengths in the sense that they confer a unique ability to overcome afflictive states. The way they're cultivated meditation is parallel to the way the governing powers are cultivated. Oh dear, let's see, 18. Mary Beth, anything good? Uh, same names as the five governing powers, gotcha. Uh, let's see. Skipping that little section, four considerations pertain to suffering in the realm of desire, four to suffering in two higher realms. So here's the first, uh, we're, we're diving into the first numerological exploration. And instead of getting totally lost in the numbers, I'll start off. I think in this scheme, the, the interesting part of it is that the, it's... Uh, these factors to be eliminated um, span the three realms and are repeated in various uh, arrangements in each of the three realms. So we have a series of uh, uh, defilements or ways of being attached to existence in the desire realm. And we have a similar scheme of ways of being attached to the form realm and the formless realm. And you would think that, okay, if I could overcome anger, then I would be done with anger. But, um, or uh, attachment or doubt, but there's, there's attachment and doubt in each of the three realms that, that pertain to each of the three realms. And so according to the way this scheme works is you have to overcome attachment to each realm sort of separately. So we tend to, uh, I, I think those of us that live in the desire realm, uh, I think we, we view the form realm as something very enviable. I think we would be thrilled at being able to exist in the form realm because the form realm is the states of absorptions and they are very stable and pleasant and undisturbed and uh, they would seem like uh, we had really made it. So they, they still come accompanied with uh, defilements that need to be overcome. So he goes through some counting. Uh, at the end of the paragraph, multiplying the 32 sub topics by this figure of seven gives a total of 20, 224. That's, I think that's the highest number he goes to. The moderate degree of patient acceptance. Okay, the 
moderate degree of patient acceptance. What a cryptic phrase that could be, right? So, um, the first two stages of the passive uh, linkage is how this translator translates the second path. Our meditative warmth and peak experience in the second two stages are patient acceptance and the highest state of mundane experience. And each of these has a lower, so each of the four has a lower, a medium, and a higher degree. So three levels to each of the four, which makes 12. Someone who says a moderate degree of patient acceptance, that's the middle level of achievement of patient acceptance. So you are now in stage, uh, let's see, three, six, seven. You've accomplished seven stages of the path of linkage, and you're on stage eight of the 12. <laughs> Henrietta. Well, this is, I mean, I tuned out of these two pages here when I was reading them. And I was just wondering whether, um, so somebody who's going through this, these stages, is working in a monastic situation generally and would be guided or how, how do you really recognize to such a degree, precise degree, what your path is going? What, how, how do you recognize your path with all this? Uh, to me, it just is yeah, actually, beyond me. <laughs> it is totally uh, inconceivable. I, I agree. But um, I think on the one hand, uh, realistically speaking, one would just meditate as usual on one's experience and investigate the four, uh, the, the different aspects of the Four Noble Truths in, in greater and greater um, clarity in one's experience. And I think through that, one then naturally progresses through these stages, at least in the realm of desire, in order to undo them in the realm of form. And formlessness, you would have to also cultivate those absorption states. And, and then within those absorption states, then you analyze the uh, various qualities of your state of mind in order to overcome them. And generally, the way they say to do this is to notice um, the state of mind that you're in compared to the state of mind before you achieve that level of meditation and notice how it's, it's, it's more calm and stable and subtle. And then notice the factors of the current state of meditation and identify in what way could that current state become even more subtle and calm and stable and pleasant. And then you, uh, you uh, somehow apply exertion to then pacify the current mind stream in order to achieve a more subtle mind stream. So that, to me... I don't see any other way of doing that just by gradually sort of uh, progressing, um, um, what do you call it, intuitively. Mm. Whereas you'll see in one of these sections, he goes through this excruciatingly detailed 
way that one meditates on this, this truth and this something or other and pairs them up and then one meditates on these and then one, and if you're a lazy person, you do these first and then you do those and if you're a desirous person, you do those and then you do, it's like, you, you got to be kidding me. These guys had way too much time on their hands to come up with this <laughs> But um, another thing that's going on here is this is Longchenpa, who's a tantrika, you know, living in 1300s. And he's talking about uh, what he's reading of texts that were written in the uh, mostly like the 5th century, Vasubandhu's treasury of Abhidharma, the 4th century. And uh, what Vasupandu did is he compiled and summarized all of this information in this text called the Mahavibhasha, which had like thousands of pages or something that com combines like tons of different texts that had developed over like 500 years of Shravakaness, Shravakayana peoples, describing all sorts of different stuff, and he like boils it down. And you know, so it's 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 like they're describing something that they're not. He's describing something that he's not practicing. He's not really doing. I don't think. And uh, um, it, it's very. And because of that, it becomes totally formulaic. It becomes like this numero num number game. I don't know. You know, maybe it's. Uh, uh, actually done as a way of just sharpening their intellect to scheme it out like this. Who knows? I'd be curious. To, you know, because I've never seen this level of this way of describing the, the sequence of the path in any of these texts that he's referring to. Like, um, I'll have to check the Treasury of Knowledge and see if he goes to this this level of detail in the schemes but like if you read the path of purification which is like the main text on the path in the Theravada tradition Buddha Gosha 500 in the common era his scheme for achieving the, the different stages of the path is very different and nowhere near totally not like as num numerical like this so I don't. I don't know. I've never. I've never seen this sort of way of encapsulating the path in any Theravadan, so-called Theravadan text. Uh. But I've seen it in, in like Mipam. Mipam does the similar thing, which is where I developed the charts that you'll see I emailed you before. Uh, Mipam does this similar similar numerical game. So, so getting. So, um, yeah, I'm sorry. From treasury of knowledge, I imagine. So it's meant to be just a, a quick summary, maybe an outline, not not a not something you would use to practice with. You would. I, you know, it's like it, it strikes me as it's being used as a way of turning people off. <laughs> <laughs> Success. <laughs> um, you know. Uh, to speak more positively, it seems like it's being used as a way as a, as a way of exercising your understanding on on uh, understanding the different nuances of the four noble truths and of the defilements and of um, 
what's the third aspect of sort of like uh, the different types of contemplation or something that are done. But I don't know. It's, it's strange. Thank you. <laughs> and, and, you know, so I'm like trying to pull out what are some of the interesting things. And, and I think this, 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 there's this, uh, throughout this scheme, there's this sense that you have to overcome, uh, like there's this, there's this big set of defilements. It's hard to quantify in each of the three realms. Now, let's say like there's a hundred each or something or 80 each. And, uh, and then in, in the, the realm two and three, there's less. So in the desire realm is like 80 or whatever. And, um, but there, this idea that you have to overcome similar defilements in each of the three realms, I think that's really interesting. And so uh, the, 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 what happens in the tradition is that, and we'll see some reference to it here when he goes to the arhats, is that there's, from the very start of Buddhism, the Buddha mentions the possibility of achieving enlightenment without uh, experiencing the absorption states without going through the uh, four uh, form absorptions and then the four form absorptions. Um, and then you have this idea, this, this notion in the uh, arhat stage of arhats who are adorned or not adorned. You know, you're adorned if you have the, the uh, absorptions and you're not if you haven't done the absorptions. And often they're called... Uh, uh, moist enlightenment, moist with the experience of absorption, and uh, dry insight worker is what the uh, paths of wisdom folks are called, who don't who don't cultivate the absorption states. And obviously, what what uh, gets passed down into the into the uh, Vajrayana tradition is not doing the absorption states, but instead focusing on insight. And uh, it's sort of interesting to try to figure out when that transition happened, because there's there's some Mahayana texts that talk about doing the absorptions. Like if you read the Bodhicharavatara, he he mentions like doing the absorptions, which is sort of odd. But um, then you get in the Tibetan Vajrayana scheme when they go through the path. Like if you if you read Gampopa's presentation of the path in in uh, detail or carefully. He alludes to these schemes and he says, um, because it's acknowledged that one in the Mahayana path, we have not uh, practiced and uh, perfected the absorptions. So uh, when we achieve the path of seeing, um, we haven't overcome the defilements of the two higher realms, of the three realms. And so he says, unlike in the earlier tradition, where the practitioners, the, the tradition that the Buddha mostly set out was for people to do absorption meditation, and then on the basis of going through all the different levels of absorption, one would then practice insight. And, and there, thereby, by virtue of that, when you achieve the path of seeing, you had already uprooted the defilements relating to the second and third um, realms, the emotional defilements, whereas Mahayana practitioners 
after you achieve the path of seeing, you have to go back and cultivate the absorption so that you so that you can then overcome the yeah, I like Morgan's response. <laughs> so that you can then overcome the defilements of the two higher realms. How was that? Was that pretty exciting? I mean, that is the most exciting part of the whole thing. <laughs> I keep saying the book is going to get more exciting, and I keep getting proved to be wrong. <laughs> That's okay. I'm mostly wrong. I'm used to being wrong. Um, anyway, where were we? Uh, then on the bottom of page 132, with a moderate degree of patient acceptance, so with the medium grade of the experience of the, the third stage of the second path, one meditates on 28 considerations, and he does the numbers, which, uh, you know, is not relevant to go through. Um, On, the, on page 133, we see this first uh, division of types of individuals in the first paragraph. In the context of meditating on the four remaining considerations, i.e. pertaining to suffering in the realm of desire, there are two types of individuals, those of predominantly sensual disposition and those of predominantly intellectual disposition. And the first type meditates on three truths, having admitted either that of the cessation of suffering or the path, whichever the individual feels appropriate from the four truths as they apply to the realm of desire and those of individuals can later omit the latter two truths and meditate on the two remaining <laughs> so and at, th that, at this point those individuals fall into fur two further subcategories those hampered by the pride of egotism and those hampered by laziness and those in the first subcategory perfect a moderate degree of patient acceptance by meditating twice now, when he says meditating twice, it's like, how long do they meditate in each of those two times? I thought that was one of the more unusual statements, like they meditate twice. Is that for 10 minutes each or like for the proverbial four-hour session, which is, by the way, the normal meditative session is four hours. Thus, in the context of the moderate degree of patience, by admitting those considerations that are no longer necessary and counting the remaining, we come up with only 119. We're down from 224. <laughs> that one I went through in a little bit of detail. I'm not going to go through the rest in detail. I hope that's okay with you guys. But anyway, in answer, somebody asked, like, how do they actually do this? And it seems to me that that's how, according to Longchampa, he, he's indicates that that's how they would do it. They would actually meditate specifically on different topics as they apply to the realm of desire and as they apply to the other realms. Did somebody raise their hand? Uh, yeah, I, I'm just thinking, you know, like, it, you know, all of the first types and how many times you do it and all that is, not really what it's all about here it's about being aware of yourself and if you've got these problems it might be more than two times i mean uh and you know very well whether or not any of these clashes or whatever they are are a problem in your with your meditation or in your life or whatever i know everybody here is a little bit 
more pure than I am. And I see this a little clearer. And uh, maybe this isn't true. Maybe it is. Uh, I'm just kidding to some degree, but uh, I I don't know if the numbers here is really, yeah, I think it's more of the awareness of what's happening and how you handle it. I mean, and then some people have, I certainly deal with pride of egotism and laziness and uh, predisposition towards indolence sometimes. Uh, this is all, uh, I don't know, I think it's pretty clear, really. It's, uh, I think it's very important, too, at least to me. And uh, and it, I deal with it with my meditation. And uh, I think it's pretty much saying that. I it's some of how many consider 119 considerations that's a little bizarre but uh not maybe maybe more than that in some cases i i don't know that's kind of the way i'm seeing it yeah i agree i would have rounded it up to 120 <laughs> yeah really <laughs> anyway so let's let's go on and uh, on the bottom of the page one interesting thing is he says uh Again, these individuals fall into two types of their dominant belief that phenomena they perceive have identity. They perfect a moderate degree of patient acceptance by meditating on emptiness. If they're dominated by the belief in a self that has identity, they meditate on the lack of such identity. Anyway, the path of seeing and the Shravaka approach after the completion of the path of linkage, the 16, excuse me, the 16 steps in the path of seeing dawn in succession. In actuality, it's the first 15 of these that constitute the path of seeing. Everybody has a different opinion of this, which is not that important. But uh, the 16th step is applying the antidote that ensures the continuity of the process of elimination on the path of seeing, i.e. into the remaining paths. It also constitutes the onset of the path of meditation, the fourth path. Regarding the process of elimination, the path of seeing, conceptual imputation is the factor to be eliminated. Conceptual imputation is the main obstruction to enlightenment. Did I say that correctly? Conceptual imputation is the main obstruction to enlightenment. So, uh, if we uh, analyze this process with respect to its essence, we find there are, in fact, six factors to be eliminated as listed in the Abhidharma Kosha, which are desire, anger, pride, ignorance, opinionatedness, and doubt. Uh, these six, moreover. So we'll come back to these six. And if we analyze the process of elimination, so the Vaibhashika position, we find the Vaibhashika system of Shravaka approach uses the four truths of the focus of meditation stating that within the three realms of existence, the negative impact of the factors to be eliminated involves ten, not six, factors, five of which are belief systems and five of which are not. So here are the five wrong views, this very famous list. And when they're summarized as one, as just wrong view, then you have the six root clashes, which were listed up above. Desire, anger, pride, ignorance, opinionatedness, and doubt. Opinionatedness is wrong view. And wrong view has five types. So when you spread out, when you extrapolate those, then you have these 10 factors. But they're usually, like in this, when we go through the 51 mental factors, 
factor summarized as one is wrong with you. The five belief systems are belief in the reality of the perishable mind body act. So belief in the, the five skandhas as the basis of the self. That's the first one. Belief in some ideological extreme. Uh, belief in ideological extreme means, well, here's another gloss on these five that's a little easier to understand. Let's see, the five. Here we get the five wrong views. They're actually called the five views. View, uh, by definition, is wrong. Interestingly, the perishable collection, the view that grasps an extreme of existence or non-existence, that's an ideological extreme. Either something exists or nothing exists, or there is nothing that exists. Wrong view of causation, which he, in our book, is described as belief in erroneous ideas, dismissing karma, dismissing the workings of karma, cause and effect, or Belief in philosophical views as absolutes, is what uh, Chempa says. The consideration that one's views, one's own views are supreme. This is like holding that one has the, the most supreme view. The haughtiness and arrogance that comes from thinking that one knows the best, one understands best, one's view is supreme to all others. So this is one of the main, in the list of the five no-nos, you know, um, there may be a tendency to think, oh, Buddhism is the best system, and it surpasses all other systems which are lesser, and to think, oh, ours is supreme. And then you look at this, and you're like, oh, the idea that Buddhism is supreme is a wrong view. Interesting. The consideration that morality and asceticism are extreme, or in our book, belief in discipline and deportment is absolute. This is the idea that if I do this one uh, discipline, it's it's the most, it's the best and most uh, supreme discipline. Like if I stand on my head for an hour every day, that is it leads to enlightenment. Or if I am a uh, vegetarian, it's it is the most important thing in the world. Or if I tell really bad jokes, that's the most important thing in the world. You know, being fixated on any particular thing that you do as being like the ultimate panacea. Five factors, going back to our text on 135, that talk the five factors that are not belief systems, like the five we just went through, are desire, anger, pride, ignorance, and doubt. Ignorance of the sense of stupidity, not the root ignorance which is what we just went through, which was the first one of those, the belief of the self, the five aggregates as being the self. <laughs> he plays around with these endlessly, the, the first and the second group of five, and blah, blah, blah. It goes through that endlessly to the end of this section on page 136. And then we come to the Sautrantika system. And uh, he adds a slight nuance on the Sautrantika system. 
The only noticeable part in the South Toronto system that I'd like to point out is in the second paragraph on that section, which is on page 136, it says, in the two higher realms, the four factors of anger associated with the four truths can be omitted. Because apparently anger cannot exist in the two higher in the two higher realms of form and formless. So I used that example earlier of anger, and I changed it to a different file because I realized that uh, you can't achieve the realm of form if you have not uprooted anger. Interestingly, and the same with formless. So you don't have that defilement left if you've made it that far. Let's see the process of elimination on the path of seeing, page 137. There are two ways of removing the factors to be eliminated on the path of seeing. So there's two ways. Either you can go step by step or you can zoom. Use zoom, have a zoom session. Those who progress developmentally remove these factors eight times through the 15 steps that constitute the paths of seeing. Give the patient acceptance of the understanding of the truth of suffering. So the patient acceptance is the third of the four stages of the path of linkage. And the fourth stage is where you link up to the path of seeing. You link up to um, becoming a, 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 a noble one, a supreme being who's no longer part of the mundane world. So linking up to the uh, enlightened group of enlightened people. Welcome, welcome to the society of uh, educated women. Welcome to the to the sangha of enlightened people. Right, linkage, um, patient acceptance. What is patient acceptance? Through the patient acceptance of the understanding of the truth of suffering, all take negative factors associated with that truth as it pertains to the realm of desire actually eliminated is a process by which new influences come into being through the understanding of suffering. The process of eliminating ten, these ten factors continues. Through the patient acceptance that brings a subsequent understanding of suffering, the 18 negative factors associated with the truth of suffering as it pertains to the two higher realms, nine of each, omitting anger, so it's not 10, are actually eliminated through the subsequent understanding of suffering. Um, their elimination continues. The foregoing process of elimination is similar for the remaining three truths. This is a really unclear, oblique way of describing that. Um, uh, There's there's uh, there's uh, patience. Uh, I sort of misspoke. Patience is the third stage of the second path, but patient acceptance happens on the path of seeing, where we go through the uh, sixteen aspects of the four noble truths, or the four noble truths, let's say, and for each of the four noble truths. There's an acceptance, a patient acceptance of that truth. And then there's a subsequent understanding that arises from having patiently accepted the truth of suffering. I've never really seen a very good explanation of like what these are and what these mean, but it, it seems to be something like 
um, sort of like the first one, patient acceptance of each of the truths, is like um, like you know, just sort of what it says, accepting that they're true. You know, whereas up until a certain, up until this point of the path of seeing, or, you know, a certain point of grappling with the the four truths, there's a there's uncertainty, there's doubt, and there's uh, and that uncertainty and doubt has a level of um, sort of struggling with the truths to try to understand them or try to make them not true, try to like. No, it can't possibly really be true sort of thing. And then finally, there's a complete encounter, so to speak, with the truth that is described as this patient acceptance of like, yep, truth, uh, suffering is real. It's like there's no more fighting it. There's no more uh, lack of clarity about it at all. But patient, uh, but truth is completely, sorry, suffering is completely true. And then there's, out of that, there's an understanding that grows. So they, they make this distinction of this two-stage process of really, on the path of seeing, of enlightenment, of really understanding the four truths in, these two, in this two-step process for each of them. First, accepting the truth of each one of them, and then understand, I guess, understanding is, I guess, understanding the ramifications. Like, you know, what is, what is it? Okay, now that I've accepted that everything in my experience is suffering, what's the ramification of that? The subsequent understanding. Anyway, for those who progress more rapidly, the process of elimination is similar to that of the bodhisattva approach and that it involves removing those factors to be eliminated on the path of seeing four times through the 15 steps that constitute the path of seeing. Instead of uh, eight times, it's four times, I guess, for those who progress more apt. But there's this, this uh, uh, mention, this allusion to the Bodhisattva approach of progressing through the, the five paths, which is something that Trump presents in the uh, Profound Treasury. Uh, Mary Beth has pointed this out, and he'll, Longchenpa will return to this. <clears throat> Seven aids to enlightenment are... Uh, arise on the paths of seeing these aids to the authentic state of enlightened being or mindfulness, the thorough analysis of phenomena, diligence, joy, total pliancy. So pliancy, this term, total pliancy, is the same term. Um, in Tibetan, it's Xinjiang. In uh, Sanskrit, it's in Sanskrit, it's I don't remember. That's a Sanskrit word. I don't remember. Uh, it'll come back to me. But uh, meditative absorption and impartiality. But pliancy, this is, uh, appears in the uh, antidotes to laziness in the scheme of Shamatha and Rapa. In Shamatha, where you have the um, five obstacles and there are eight antidotes. And you have Xinjiang. And then it, it reoccurs, and he did, although he didn't mention it, it was in the uh, uh, patience section of the second path, and then it uh, occurs here again in the paths of seeing. And here it's like supreme pliancy, yes. I'm sorry, but I've lost track of where you are. 
I'm on 137, <clears throat> seven aids to enlightenment. That list there, and I'm talking about total pliancy as opposed to normal partial pliancy. Derek? Yes, ma'am. Is the total pliancy the same as thoroughly processed? Yes, that's the. Okay, okay. Thank you very much. That's what Trump Rinpoche trans. I keep saying Xinjiang, which is the Tibetan, but yes. Thoroughly processed okay. is what he calls it. And yeah, so it, it's uh, one of the antidotes. And then it's actually the experience of the culmination of shamatha and the culmination of Vipassana. One has pliancy. And there's mental pliancy and physical pliancy that occurs. And it's it's when your shamatha practices become so stable and refined that your body feels like it's floating. And there's a blissful feeling that suffuses your body from head to toe. You know that, right? You've all had that. <laughs> Half the meditation of the Shravaka approach uh, has three main phases. Initial, intermediate, and final are divided into nine degrees of applying antidotes. So this is uh, his way of enumerating 81 sort of stages of the path of meditation that uh, there's nine basic stages there's nine main degrees of this path of meditation and each one of them has a lower medium and higher grade so nine uh, how did i get to 81 are divided to nine degrees the week the week of the initial I think I think you do this twice. I think there's three grades of each of the nine, and then there's three of those or something like that. So it's three times three times nine is 81. Anyway, it's just another not very helpful numbers game. Uh, let's see on the on the page 138. In the middle in the middle of the page in essence the nine degrees are defined by the antidotes that come into play as one applies oneself uh, and then the, to the noble eightfold path through the nine levels that define the paths of meditation the eight branches of this correct and noble path are view correct view thought speech so the eightfold path right speech livelihood uh, right active activity livelihood effort mindfulness and meditative absorption in conjunction with this one cultivates the following nice successive degrees of meditative equipoise the, the four absorption states of form and the four formless absorption states of infinite space consciousness nothingness and neither existence nor non-existence um, skipping ahead noticing what time it is Let's see. Eric? Yes. Do those nine degrees relate to the nine stages of shamatha? No, shamatha has been perfected long before. I should have mentioned that the shamatha basically gets perfected at the end of the path of accumulation, at which point one begins to really uh, develop one's vipassana, so the path of linkage is primarily the path of Vipassana. And at the end of the path of linkage, one, linkage, 
one experiences the complete union of shamatha vipassana, which paves the way for the passive scene, the entry into the passive scene. Thank you for asking that. So let's go to uh, bottom 139, the fruition of the Shravaka, Arhat. And uh, upon the completion of the path of meditation, the foregoing way, the fruition becomes evident as two aspects of pristine cognition. The knowledge that distortions have come to an end and the knowledge that one will no longer experience suffering. So all defilements have been uprooted and there's no more one will no longer circle in samsara. And let's see, skipping the quote, it is said that suffering is to be understood. So this is a nice way that the four truths are summed up uh, appropriate at this stage. And you'll see Trump goes through this as well. Suffering is to be understood. Its origin is to be eliminated. Its cessation is to be made evident or is to be uh, uh, made apparent or brought into experience. Cessation is to be experienced, and the path is to be applied to one's experience, or the path is to be tread, trod. Uh, in the middle of the page, arhats are of two kinds. Those who experience residual traces of mind-body aggregates and those who do not. Those who do are alive and those who do not are no longer alive. It's really as simple as that. It's a little bit odd that he doesn't just come out with that right at the beginning, but does at the end. That there's nirvana with residue and without residue. Nirvana with residue is after you achieve arhat, sorry, excuse me, arhatship. While you're still alive, there's still residue that one has from inhabiting the body and the karma that comes along with that. And then after one, uh, after the, the uh, body dies, then one experiences nirvana without residue. And let's see, uh, for the one who experiences residual traces, there remains a slight residue of the truth of suffering since they've not yet eliminated the five skandhas that perpetuate samsara, so they must guard their senses closely. These types of arhats fall into two categories. All of them realize that the residual traces that are the basis of their existence do not constitute any personal identity, so they've uprooted the first egoless ego, experienced the first egolessness, unless they remove all the factors to be eliminated that apply to the three realms. However, some do not attain the adornments of supernormal powers and so forth through their meditative ability and so are called unadorned. They have not achieved the absorption states where those who attain these qualities are, are called uh, adorned. There are two other ways that they're classified on the basis of what they've eliminated their level of acumen. In the first case, arhats may experience complete freedom as a result of both sublime knowing, prajna, and meditative absorption, or on the basis of sublime knowing alone. And so respectively, arhats basically repeating the same classification, but in a different nuance. Arhats may either be free through the power of sublime knowing and meditative absorption of both the obscurations of the afflictive states in the three realms, 
for the glaciers and the obscurations that impede meditative equipoise. Interesting that they categorize the two obscurations in this way, which is different than in the Maya, you'll see. Or, they, or to be free of the afflictive obscurations, but not the obscurations that impede meditative equipoise poise. The afflictive obscurations include the three mental poisons, three roots, and other factors that make the mind thoroughly subject to afflictive states. The obscurations that impede meditative equipoise include laxity and agitation, which are the two main uh, um, obscurations in meditation, dullness and agitatedness, and other factors that create such obstacles. Skipping ahead uh, to the next paragraph. Arhats who experience residual traits are classified on the basis of their personal acumen. There are six kinds. Those whose meditation is undermined those prone to committing suicide, those who need to guard their senses closely, those with a tendency towards stagnation, those with the potential for realization, and those with the quality of movability. So it's like, why do they have different types of arhats? You know, how do they come up with these different types of arhats? And some of them sound like, well, why are they even arhats? You know, if they have a tendency towards stagnation, that doesn't sound like you know, my idea of being an arhat, committing suicide. What's that about, right? Yeah, were there a lot of suicides? Oh. Yeah, well, let's come to that. So arhats of the first kind are of dull acumen, whose uh, meditation is un undermined, and the phenomena they perceive undermine their blissful repose. That is, they experience a weakening of the bliss of their meditative stability. So there's, there's this, uh, I think what happened is people would gain enlightenment and, and it would seem like they were arhats and then they would uh, regress. There are various ways of explaining this regression. So uh, they would, uh, they perceive, would undermine blissful repose and their weakening of the bliss of their meditative stability. Arhats of the second kind are also of dull acumen and believe, and so they experience this uh, regression and they think, well, if I commit suicide now, I won't regress further and I'll go into complete nirvana without res residue. And uh, so why bother continuing in this life with this, the, the pain of a body that's aging when instead I can check out this was unfortunately not that uncommon and the Buddha did not want people to do this and he spoke about it on various occasions. Uh, let's see. The third kind uh, similarly have a regression uh, if they become disoriented. But they, they, but well, not if they don't. This disorientation depends on whether their minds are distracted by the usual sense pleasures. Uh -huh. so, so, how is it that these people are actually considered enlightened? Yeah, I thought that, that, I thought that there was no regression when you're truly enlightened. I said that as as well earlier. Didn't I? That's a good question. I don't know. Nobody seems to answer that here. When going through some of this, 
I think of a psychopath. And a psychopath actually can do, achieve a lot of these things, but then they do bizarre stuff like make suicide or whatever. But a psychopath can easily go through this and convince everybody else they're in hiding. Yeah, so but that's kind of what it sounds like. You know, what you're saying is that, it, it, and probably this happened, is like it seemed like somebody had achieved enlightenment and they hadn't really. They hadn't really become an arhat. And then they started to regress. And it was like probably they were recognized as an arhat when they first achieved something. And then the establishment probably didn't want to acknowledge that they had made a mistake. So then they say, well, some arhats regress. <laughs> Instead of just saying, well, we made a mistake. Guy's <laughs> uh, not really an arhat. That's that's the best I can figure. Uh, that's what I figure happened. If they just made mistakes and they didn't want to admit it. Anyway, these types, it's not worth really going on with them too much. Um, going on to the next page. Uh, with no no residual traces are the ones that go into uh, they die. Prajeka Buddha approach approach. So not we don't have much time, which is good because it's not worth really spending that much time on this. Except that this is another like weird anomaly in the system. Like who are Prajeka Buddhas? Why do they spend all this time on it? And how do they fit into like the system? And, how do we relate to this? And it, it seems like Pratyeka Buddhas were like people who became enlightened like on their own. They didn't go along with the whole Sangha and the system that everybody else went along with, but they did seem to be enlightened. And uh, so they and and somehow they, they must have like wanted to be recognized for being enlightened. And so they sort of bonded with the Buddha Sangha and the Buddha Sangha wanted to come up with some way of like acknowledging their accomplishment or something. I don't know, I'm struggling to like figure out, you know, what are these animals? So there's some that are very- uh, They're rhinoceroses, that's what they are. That's right, that's the kind of animals <laughs> that don't like, that are into solitude, which is great. And some of them like to hang out with groups of 500 or more. <laughs> the, the number 500, by the way, is like, uh, it's not a real number. It's like, of, like a lot. It's like saying a lot. <laughs> Similar to 84,000 of just being a very high number, except not quite so high. Exactly. Thank you. Somebody, I think, Chris, you have to mute yourself. You're producing a strange sound through our system here. Thank you, sir. Um, the the only uh, interesting thing of the project of Buddhas is that they focus on the Nadanas. Where was that? Uh, Oh, there were two interesting things, that and uh, uh, the very end on 147. Oh, let's see. Okay, on 145. Well, I'm sorry, 144. Uh, 
the, mental, the, the little paragraph and fourth, their particular situation has two aspects. The physical is they dwell alone. The mental is they continually reflect in the 12 links of interdependent connection, which in Sanskrit is pratitya samutpada, um, and the 37 factors. We've been going through the 37 factors, ad nauseum. And uh, then we have the three avenues, usually called the three doors of liberation. And the 12 links are, these are the 12 Madonnas. Good to sort of know these generally, if not specifically, ignorance, karmic formations or patterning consciousness, mind body complex, which is similar to the skandhas, and that the skandhas include mind body, but it's used in a somewhat different way. Slight nuance on that. The six uh, senses contact, sensation, compulsion, usually translated as craving, perpetuation usually translated as grasping or fixation, and then becoming birth and aging and death. And the idea is that this is a, um, an evolution, and if you cut the first one, then the others don't occur. And uh, the, there's this notion that, realistically speaking, the way to, to uh, uh, reduce the, motive, the momentum of this wheel of the Nodanas is to uh, lessen the link between compulsion and perpetuation, between craving and grasping. So it's hard to cut out craving, but you can actually work with the fixation that comes after craving. We want something and then we like uh, get really serious about it, let's say. So if you can sort of determine that, that stage of your progression of egoness and see how we go from craving to fixation uh, and try to reduce that, then that's supposed to then sort of put uh, a chink in the chain of causation of samsara. And he describes these in a little more details down below. On the right-hand side of 145, it goes through the 37 factors, and then the three avenues to complete liberation from all obscuration are emptiness, the absence of characteristics, sometimes called signlessness, and the absence of speculation, usually called wishlessness. And he describes how these uh, connect to the ground path and fruition. Quick question. Yep. The fact that he chose to discuss the Nadanas in this section, is there something unique and di different about that the Prajekas use this method more than anyone else or differently than others? That is the way this, this path of the Yanas are schematized by the, the doxographers, the path makers of the Tibetan tradition. As that for a school word, word doxography. Um, I think that's the word. <laughs> so that the, like the Shravakas did not do this as much or the Bodhisattvas, the, the other ones did not use that particular method as much? Shravaka scheme is the uh, five aggregates and the Pratyeka Buddhas, they, they, uh, they focus and uh, their expertise is the 12 Madonnas, Pratyeka Samadbada and the the traditional way of describing this, which Trungpa Roshay uses, is that they see a bone, 
and the bone represents death, and they work backward from yeah. a bone, from a human thigh bone. Well, if somebody died, how did they die? Well, they got old and they got sick, and how did that happen? Well, they were born. How did they get born? Because they had grasping and so forth, working back through the twelve Madonnas. So yes, and the idea is that. Yeah, I just wondered if anybody. No, go ahead. It's gone to uh, understand the emptiness of the person, the first of the twofold egolessness, and the 12 Madonnas. The Pratyeka Buddhas use the 12 Madonnas to understand the emptiness of phenomena uh, in, in the sense of the first half of the second fold egolessness. So they don't, they don't fully understand uh, complete emptiness. But uh, they have, they understand this, the emptiness of phenomena partially. Does anybody sort of address why these particular groups use different means? No, I've is never it, seen that. I've never I mean, is it that sort of something where they that's what they were exposed to through certain teachers or lineage, or is it just some kind of bizarre random, <laughs> or or is it something that's it, really just grouped in, in, oh. in well, retrospect. I, I thought the Prateka Buddhas were, were people who just came to it on their own without any teachers. Well, that's true. I'm just, but in that case, it's just, I'm, I can't quite fathom why all those people working on their own would come up with the same, you know, same idea of, hey, let's do the Nidanas, you know, whereas everybody else would be, hey, let's do something else. That's so, That's the part that I wonder if it, how would this, as you say, with this looking in retrospect. Uh, it's about out of time. And if it's okay with you, there's like one more sure. section to go through so we can end. Sure. Instead of going over the same thing again and again. Let's see. Um, on page 147, the second paragraph, the arhats of these two types of approaches who have passed into the state of cessation in which there are no residual traces are considered by those traditions never to waver from their quiescent state. However, from the higher perspective of the Mahayana, all functioning of ordinary consciousness dissolves into that state of quiescence for as long a time as the Arhat previously spent in spiritual development. For as long as they took to become an Arhat, for that same amount of time, they they rest in the bliss of uh, quiescence, of nirvana without trace. Then, vacation's over and they're reborn in the lotus foot in a pure realm, such as Sukhavati, Abhirati, or Padmaka. I mean, taking rebirth by the force of subtle cognitive obscurations, which they did not overcome or uproot. And the habit patterns of that ignorance, the arhat remains in the closed bud of that lotus for seven years. So they, just like Padmasambhava was like a seven-year-old or Garabdori maybe. At the end of that time, by the power of the sunlight compassion of the Buddha in that realm, waves of enlightened speech resound with the verses that cause the lotus to begin to bloom, <coughs> rouse the arhat from the intoxicating stupor induced by their meditative absorption. And these verses are such as like uh, the one that he quotes from the Lotus Sutra, the White Lotus of the Sacred Dharma. And immediately upon hearing the loudspeaker, the Arhat experiences an enthusiasm for the Mahayana path. 
because they've been sort of brainwashed by the loudspeaker system. And uh, the lotus blossom opens and coming into the presence of the Tathagata, the Arhat rouses the Bodhicitta for the first time and then by meditating according to the Mahanapan, becomes a Buddha in that very lifetime. So they go from Arhatship to Buddhahood in that one lifetime in the some Buddha field. Further, it is a, a sort of oddity at the bottom. Furthermore, the arhats can enter the path only at the beginning, the lowest level of the path of accumulation, and then complete the five paths of Mahayana. Some might raise the objection. This means that by having to begin at the path of accumulation, a spiritually advanced individual reverts to the level of an ordinary being. So, you know, you've got an arhat who's got to go back to stage one on the Mahayana scale. Arhat's got to go back to the path of accumulation of a Mahayana. That's sort of weird. And he says, uh, this objection, however, is a sign of their lack of understanding. It's a very good way of uh, responding to objections, by the way, is you cut down the person's intelligence and ask the question. <laughs> Anyway, if a be I, I can't believe I'm saying that, right? If a beginning practitioner is an ordinary being enters the path of accumulation, that being still has not attained a spiritually advanced state, and so it is appropriate to term this the level of an ordinary being. But when Shravakas and Pradyeka Buddhas enter the Mahana path of accumulation, they are spiritually advanced, and so have already developed the qualities of the initial phase, that is, the applications of mindfulness, the suggestion that someone should could revert to being an ordinary person after having already cultivated the applications of mindfulness, even, is flawed. This was the case, then, even on the 10th spiritual level, one could revert to being an ordinary being, and so forth. A further objection to be raised, and it follows logically that the Shravakas Partakers who are in the process of cultivating the applicants' mindfulness are already spiritually advanced individuals in the Mahayana sense. Since whoever is a spiritually advanced being has cultivated the Mahayana version of these applications, but this is not proof that they are spiritually advanced beings in the true sense of the term. Shravakas and Partyaka Buddhas are not the equals of spiritually advanced Mahayana beings in terms of what they have eliminated or realized. Therefore, this primary criterion has not been met. They're not spiritually advanced Mahana folks, but are spiritually advanced Mahana types. Well, the fact that one is not a spiritually advanced being in the Mahana approach, even though one is cultivating the Mahana version of the applicants of mindfulness, means that the foregoing ups, objection is not valid, is overruled. Objection overruled. Like in the, uh, in the movie, have you seen uh, the Chicago 7? Everybody seen that movie? Anybody seen that movie? Great movie. So I'll go see that movie. It's really sort of mind-blowing that that happened. Um, the judge, like, constantly overrules objections, which is sort of like, you know, the judge, like, just dismisses very relevant objections, which... I don't know, this is sort of heretical to say, but it feels like long chimpa. Anyway, there's this odd, uh, yeah, it's a great movie. There's this odd uh, way of looking at the, the paths, the Hinayana and Mahayana paths. It's, it's very strange. But you find in some versions of uh, the Tibetan presentation of the path, 
some Tibetans, they don't do this. They sort of say that the difference between Hinayana and Mahayana is the motivation. And that's the progression through the five paths is similar up to, uh, uh, sorry, differs in, in terms of motivation and what is accumulated. And the Mahayana path has a, a much longer accumulation of merit because the goal of the Mahayana path is to become a Buddha who has a Rupakaya form body, which is what requires so much accumulation of merit to create the uh, 32 major and 84 minor marks of a Buddha takes a lot of merit. And with that, let's close tonight. <laughs> Any further comments or questions or suggestions or hypotheses? Derek, it, I mean, this is just sort of uh, for some reason, at the end of reading the Pratika Buddha section, I, I thought, well, wasn't the Buddha at some point a Pratika Buddha? I mean, I don't going out alone and, um, I mean, it just, the distinctions, like Cynthia was saying, seem a little arbitrary to me. It's a totally bizarre cultural thing. It's like, where did Pratika Buddha come from? You know, it's the sort of thing that people in uh, graduate school would like write dissertations on, like this sort of like socio-historical religious stuff of like, what the hell is a Pratyeka Buddha? And, and why why do they come up with this? And then how does it get used? It's like, it's, it's like used in this hermeneutical way, like to like, create the stages of the path so everything's perfect and fits in. You know, Shravaka's realized this, Pratyeka Buddha's realized that, Bodhisattva's realized that. And, you know, then the parrots and the rhinoceroses of the types. It's just so bizarre. I mean, it would be fascinating to, to research it, I guess, and find, like, some inkling of where it came from. But I, I, there, there are like I have a friend who collects dissertations and if you asked her for like dissertations on Project Buddha, you might get a few that actually might discuss this. Maybe uh, Cynthia or Henrietta, you could do that and check it out and report back to us. Any interest? Hello? I'm sorry. It's a bad connection. No? What is a Pratyeka Buddha? Not tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know. I wish I knew, but I'd love it if you guys would find out. Because it comes up over and over again. It is this very bizarre oddity. Anyway, let's dedicate our merit and close. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the victim's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you.
Thank you, Derek. Thanks, Derek. Good Thank night. Thank you. All right. Did anybody? Good night. Good night. Go check the snow. It's snowing here. Wow. Yeah, I heard the snowplow go by twice. No idea. You're up in the north. Where are you?